2 Corinthians chapter 7, to a passage that's already been mentioned this week. Very familiar, I'm sure, to many of us, <clears throat> beginning at verse 8. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold the selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we consider a, a very important subject of Scripture, a foundational doctrine. Help us all, Lord, to understand what saith the Lord? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Repentance. Whatever the Lord teaches, there's always going to be a substitute or a distortion that the God of this world will bring along our, our path to confuse us, or it's not going to be paid attention to at all. But here we have two sorrows in this passage that we've just read. The background to this, of course, is correspondence between the Corinthian believers and the great Apostle Paul. Two or three letters had already been exchanged between the church and the great Apostle, but his letters at first were not received. Very sad situation. He was their father in the faith, and there came a point in their relationship where things went sour, and they rejected him and his authority and even started calling his names questioning his motives and assassinating his character. They rejected his admonitions. In Corinth, there was factional strife. We learn about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He'd lecture them about church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because there was fornication there, lawsuits, moral purity problems. Then there was questions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage in chapter 7. Disorderly worship as opposed to the way of love. And then about even the meaning of the resurrection in chapter 15. Well, finally, they, they did respond. And we find that here in this chapter. Chapter 7, verse 7. And notice it, it says, they did so with an earnest desire that Word gives us our English word zeal. Comes from that word zeal to fulfill Paul's commands. Now they were teachable. Now they were humble instead of being resistant and hard and scornful. Now it says they were even mourning. They were sorrowing over their sin and their attitude. They had a fervent mind. They were now affectionate toward Paul as opposed to hating him. By the way, do you know what a scorner is? You can spot a scorner by how they respond to correction. A scorner will hate the one who corrects them. And therefore they're not teachable. 
But uh, you don't want to be a scorner. Paul was made happy by their sorrow. It says in verse 9, their repentance. That's, that's that change of mind. Very important word. Not because he delighted in their being miserable, but because they responded at last to his correction. And he states this principle in verse 10 that I want to take a look at in our moments together. And here he describes two sorrows, one a godly sorrow, a second one a worldly sorrow. That godly sorrow, by the way, is a word from which we may get the word systemic lupus erythematosus. Lupus. Lupus. You ever know someone who had lupus? It's tied up with this word, godly sorrow. What's the source? Well, from the Lord, as the name implies. It's a godly sorrow. It comes from the Lord. One of the earliest Old Testament examples of repentance is found over in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And here we see the, the, the type and the figure of the Holy Spirit's work as the Lord sent Nathan to David after his sin with Bathsheba. And the Spirit of God said, Thou art the man. Then in, in verse 7 of that chapter, we see conviction of sin. And then verse 13, repentance. You shall not die. You've repented, so now you're not going to die. So godly sorrow is the only sorrow with healing power. God's faithful to bring this sorrow. Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. You know, whenever you and I do something, even when you're lost, by the way, unless your heart is very, very hard, when you do something wrong, there's that invisible action of the Lord within that says, that, that was wrong, what you just did, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. That's a pretty rotten attitude you've got. That's the Spirit of That's our conscience. The Spirit of God's behind that. And that's the mercy of God that brings that in our life. And God patiently convicts, but, but there's a lot of hard hearts. Now, sinners in Corinth had arisen up in the church, and they were very rebellious to the Lord, to the apostle, to the law of God, to the church order. So it was things. if you want to look at what's happening in our churches today, look at the Corinthian epistles. There's a lot of similarities. And these sinners, these rebels, were tolerated, quote-unquote, by this church. They were uh, supposedly sophisticated enough, broad-minded enough to tolerate these folks. Instead of being made the object of discipline, they tolerated them, and that, that caused more uproar, more division in the church. Finally, the church listened to Paul and dealt with this one rebel in particular by church discipline, and he responded and was received back into fellowship because discipline works. And what's the object of discipline? I love you, and I want you back. That's the object of discipline. I love you, and I want you back. As we go to the Old Testament prophets, Amos had the concept of repentance, but not the actual term. When Amos preached to the surrounding nations, he gave a pretty uh, mournful message because there was all doom with no hope. And then in the latter chapters, you finally find repentance by means of which a sinner could escape the, the wrath of God. And Amos expresses repentance with two key words, the words seek and live. If you seek... You'll live. Chapter 5, verses 4, 6, and 14. Amos. Seek and live. That, that, that says it very well. New Testament as well. Seek. This doctrine comes to full flower in Hosea. 
when the central message was an anguished cry for Israel to repent before catastrophic judgments would fall on them as a nation. And then Ezekiel clearly articulates how each man will be judged by his own conduct. You get over to Ezekiel at chapter 18. We learn that principle. I'm not going to be judged for what my son or daughter does. My son or daughter won't be judged for what I do. Why? Because there's a a thing called personal accountability with God. All of us are going to stand individually before his judgment bar, whether right now or when we finally meet him face to face. So individual accountability, chapter 18 of Ezekiel, articulates that. Even Manasseh, one of the most egregiously wicked kings Judah ever had, lived over 50 years, he didn't live over, he he reigned over 50 years in Judah, and, and there was a river of innocent blood that ran, but he was shown mercy because he repented. 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 and 13. Then John the Baptist comes along, and he changed the emphasis from national repentance to personal repentance, individual repentance. And he, and he said, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. So repentance had to be proven by the fruits of a changed life. Well, how could that be? From the fruits of a changed heart, changed mind. So true repentance is so deep, so radical, that it affects our whole personality involves every part of us, our whole spiritual nature. Our intellect, that's got to function. We have to understand the concepts. The emotions, you know, good to see tears. And then the will must act. So repentance is profound. It's personal. It's pervasive. It it affects every part of us. And when a man sees his sin as heinous, wicked, evil, That's when he's going to start to repent. A man sees that. God's law is so perfect. It's so inflexible. And and I'm so far from that law. I'm so far from that standard. And I see myself falling so short. I've got no hope whatsoever. That's when repentance is on the way. So if God patiently convicts, but many harden their hearts. The fact that we're not dead is God's mercy. You know, you... You don't have to be in the ministry too long and you see a lot of people die in the flower of their youth. Or you see a baby die. And you, know, you often ask the question, why? And then you look at some of us who have not maybe lived as we ought to have done and we've not done right and we've failed and we've messed up. And the fact that we're not dead, we're not in a hospital, we're, we're not filled with cancer, we're not dead of a drug overdose, it's all God's goodness, it's all His mercy. So what's, what's the source of this? It's the Lord... What's the product of this repentance? It says, he works repentance to salvation. Now, let me try to be clear about this. Sorrow, by itself, sorrow is not repentance. Many people can weep in sorrow, but not be repentant. But this kind of sorrow produces a change of heart and a change of life, which is repentance. So, so sorrow can be the factory of repentance, but the finished product isn't there yet. With, I, I don't know about you, but I love to see someone sorrow over sin. I need to sorrow over my own sin. 
because if I take a flip attitude toward it, I'm not repenting. And, and you know, when I see a, an invitation given and I see some young person walking down the aisle chewing his gum like a cow and blowing bubbles and tee-heeing and laughing with his friends, my heart just sinks because that's not repentance. Sorrow affects my whole personality, this kind of sorrow. So if my heart is not broken over my, my sin and my evil deeds, I have not repented. And he says here, this is a salvation of which there is no repentance, a deliverance. The word salvation doesn't always mean in the Bible that my soul's being saved. The word salvation is a word which means to, to deliver from. To del- Sometimes when you're saved, you're saved from a bad situation. Uh, we often talk about, most often talk about salvation in the sense of saving our soul. But this salvation can be deliverance from an eternal wrath or from a bad situation, deliverance from guilt, deliverance from punishment. The word salvation by itself is deliverance. Well, this kind of repentance is not going to be changed. I'm going to be delivered from God's wrath, from a bad situation, whatever it is. I'm going to be delivered from it because I've repented. Now he illustrates. Godly sorrow and repentance illustrated in verse 11. Look at this. 2 Corinthians 7, 11. Yea, with carefulness. Now I'm careful to make my peace with God for my former sin. Keep it from happening again. I'm, I'm going to stop doing as I please. I'm going to start doing what God wants me to do. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, getting rid of my guilt by my confession and seeking of forgiveness. And by the way, my friends, we ought to seek forgiveness. Some say, well, I'm sorry. Well, we're all sorry. <laughs> I'm not only a sorry individual, but you know, uh, it's not enough to say I'm sorry. We're all sorry for what happened. Maybe it was a bad thing. We're all sorry. But that doesn't change anything. I can say I'm sorry and not be repentant. I'm sorry for this bad situation. It's come between us. I really need to seek forgiveness because when I seek biblical forgiveness, I'm not only sorry, but I acknowledge my crime. I acknowledge my sin, whatever it was. I did such and so. Can you find it in your heart to forgive me? Different matter than just saying I'm sorry. <clears throat> Indignation. That's displeasure against myself for my stupid, foolish, sinful behavior. You know, you ever, I don't know about you, but, oh, good night. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Oh, what an ignoramus. You know, all this gray hair, I have to know better. Oh, indignation. How could I be so stupid? Yea, what fear? Fear of what? Fear of God's wrath. Fear that I'll do it again. Because I know that God's mercy has an end. I know we serve a long-suffering and merciful God, but it has an end. Fear of myself. Why? I'm weak. I must watch myself. Yea, what vehement desire. That's, that's circumspect living. A hearty prayer that our lives will be kept pure. Oh, God, help me in every aspect of my life that I'll do what's right. Yea, what zeal, a, a love to God, a hatred of sin, a fear of offending the Lord, a desire to please Him. I used to have zeal for fleshly things. I used to have zeal to do all kinds of wicked, evil things. Now I want to have that same zeal for serving God. 
Yea, what revenge, disciplining of ourselves. When our flesh rises up, our spirit ought to say, Shut up! Get back in line! And our flesh ought to say, Yes, sir. That's what our spirit ought to be doing to our flesh every day. These things clear us and reveal true repentance. And repentance, true repentance, godly repentance, is necessary for salvation. You know, here's Paul speaking to the elders of Ephesus. There, there, there he is in Miletus, Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Notice what he says to those elders, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It's inconsistent and unbiblical to imagine anyone exercising faith toward Christ as a holy Savior from sin is not aware of his guilt, is not aware of his need to repent. Matthew 18 tells us that unless a person repents and becomes like a child, he has no hope of heaven. Repentance is so vital to conversion that sometimes our Lord would stress repentance rather than saving faith. Over in Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, he says this, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. The Lord's most severe words for those who refuse to repent. The scribes, the Pharisees, the doctors of the law, the religious crowd, they refuse to repent. He was really severe on them. The apostles described the conversion of the Gentiles to Christ as God granting them repentance unto life. Acts 11, verse 18. So repentance and true faith in Christ are inseparable, even though a believer might not be aware of one aspect or the other. They're inseparable. Repentance becomes a, a motivating disposition of our heart. <clears throat> Motivating right behavior, such as, you know, I did wrong to that guy. I need to make that right. Luke 19, 8, here's a good example. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. There's repentance, and the Lord Jesus said, Repentance has come to that man. Why? Because he made restitution. I remember I was witnessing this one fellow ran a service station in our town, and I'd try to give him a witness every time I could. And, and uh, he told me one time, see, in our town there's a, a Christian college. And he would sometimes have some of these young men from that Christian college work for him. And, and one guy came back to him on one occasion and said, you know, uh, Max, his name was Max, I stole some tires from you. I'm really sorry about that. I hope you forgive me. And Max said, well, okay, fine. But he never paid him back. He never gave him a penny for stealing those valuable tires. He never paid him back. And, and, and then Max was telling yeah, you Christians, look what that guy did to me. He, he, he asked me for, to forgive him. He said he was so sorry, but he never paid back what he stole. Even a lost man can figure that one out. Repentance leads me to make restitution. 
If I have wronged someone, then I need to make that right. That's one of the evidences, one of the fruits of repentance. The New Testament doesn't know anything about going through a sacrament of penance. Now, if you come from the Roman Catholic Church, you know about the sacrament of penance, confession and satisfaction, after which this priest pronounces absolution. Well, no priest with that backward collar pronounces my absolution. We have to go to our great high priest. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, not some human being. But John the Baptist and our Savior were both preachers of repentance. Both of them. The Lord made it a great part of the, of the, the commission that he gave. Luke chapter 24, verse 47 and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations. Peter preached that at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Now, I know that the Jesus-only crowd pitches their tent there, and they, they put up a big tent, and they don't move that tent ever again. But I'm just talking about that passage from this, the aspect of repentance itself. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So repentance is emphasized in the revelation in the letters to the seven churches. What did the Lord constantly say to all those churches? Repent, 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 repent. His last word to the churches, repent. When God repented in the Old Testament, such as he did with that huge city of Nineveh, there's no sorrow for sin there because he didn't sin, obviously, or a change of his eternal purpose, but there was a change in his announced purpose in these relationships to these people because they themselves changed. God didn't change, but they did. Now, let's look at this contrast. We look at biblical repentance. What's this thing about worldly sorrow? There's a godly sorrow. That's true repentance. It's not going to be changed. Then what about this worldly sorrow? Notice the word but here. That's the adversative, the antithesis. But there's worldly sorrow. What's the source? As the name implies, the world. This sorrow comes from the world, its standards, its philosophies. Sorrow for wrongdoing without God. Sorrow for wrongdoing without His law being involved. No, no conscience. That, well, there's conscience, yes. But this, this produces this melancholy mixture of self-pity and self-disgust by the world's standards. It's a, this is something like saving face. You hear the Orientals talk a lot about saving face. I don't want to be embarrassed. Well, I was caught, and I don't like to be caught, and I'll do anything I can to not be caught again. <laughs> That's the idea. Well, I'm not any more guilty than anybody else is. Yeah, I did it, but so did they. Well, that's not repentance. This only deepens my sin because I'm just seeking to avoid unpleasant circumstances. I, there's no spirit of life in that. There's no spiritual life in that sorrow. In fact, this can throw a person into great despair. This could be called remorse. I differentiate between biblical repentance and remorse. Now again, the problem is, it's confusing here because both produce tears. So you just don't know which is genuine until you see the fruit. This person who's exercising remorse never freely admits any personal wrong. 
He has to be caught. He has to be nailed. Because he's not going to volunteer what he's done. Someone who's forced to admit it, that's the person who's exercising this worldly sorrow or this remorse. And he usually extenuates, there's always some mitigating factor here. Well, yeah, I did it because, you know, this and that. And, well, you can't blame me. I mean, look, you know, look at the circumstances. He's casting blame on others, on the circumstances, giving excuses. And, and what's the product of this worldly sorrow? What's the product of remorse? It says here, it worketh death. That person is still separated from God, and they're still separated from forgiveness. All sorrow, whether it's due to disappointment, affliction, bereavement, or sin, is deadly if it's not a sanctified sorrow. That makes bitterness, resentment. In our ministry there, you know, we some of the students we have, we, we catch them doing things. And when they don't repent, and it's just remorse, yeah, how come you're always on my case and you got favorites? you got favorites. You never catch them like you catch me. Well, that's because they don't do what you do. <laughs> but they're always casting aspersions on somebody else's character rather than repenting and humbling themselves. That's not repentance, that's remorse. You start to become that scorner that we talked about. You start to hate the one who's correcting you. Because I don't like to be caught in my sin. Stop calling attention to my sin. This can lead to depression and frustration. Why? Because it's not very uplifting to be caught all the time. That's not healing. And there's several personalities in the scripture that had this kind of sorrow, a worldly sorrow. Judas Iscariot had that kind of sorrow. The Bible says he repented, but it wasn't a godly repentance. Esau, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17, we learn about Esau, that one who was ruled by his lower nature, goes off the pages of Scripture with this horrible denomination about his character. Profane. He was a profane man. Fleshly, worldly, carnal. He sought repentance with tears. He was upset. He was bitter. He was emotional. But he wasn't repentant. Pharaoh, in Exodus chapter 9, said, I have sinned. The Lord is righteous. But he never changed his behavior. Because he exercised remorse. He was caught. The Lord caught him. Saul the rich young ruler. They each had a fear. They each had a regret. They each had a, an anxiety about these unpleasant circumstances in which I've been caught. That's worldly. They each desired to avoid these unpleasant circumstances. They each desired to avoid uh, punishment. However, there's no change in their character. No change in their thinking, no change in their heart, no change in their outlook, no hatred or abandonment of sin, no thought of God's mercy to sinners. The only thing they were thinking is, I hope I don't get caught again. There's a misunderstanding, I think, sometimes of 1 John 
1.9. In fact, I heard a young people, this young person was part of a Christian school group I was listening to with my family, and they were singing and testifying. And this one young lady said, yeah, I can sin and sin and sin and sin and just have 1 John 1.9 and it's all taken care of. And I'm sitting there, my mouth open. I couldn't believe she said that. 1 John 1, 9 is a Christian's bar of soap, yes. But it doesn't mean I have license for sin. A Saul became a Paul through repentance. You notice after Psalm 32 that David never again committed adultery. You'll never see Peter denying our Savior again. He repented. Proverbs 28.13 is the Old Testament commentary on 1 John 1.9. I confess and forsake my sin. Repentance is a holy zeal to change. Will I fall? Yes. This side of glory, we will fall. But true repentance will get me back on that path. There will be growth. There will be incremental growth. There will be incremental change. Will you fall? Will you fail? Yes, you will. I will too. We will. Whereas remorse does bring sorrow, it brings tears, but no change. Except immediate or temporary, but that person goes right back to their behavior or worse. Remorse brings dissatisfaction, but no change, no hatred of sin, no growth in grace. In fact, they become bitter and resentful toward the authority figure in their life. Which leads us to ask the question of all of us, and we need to ask this of our own heart, do I hate my sin? Do I hate it? Do I hate it enough to change, to forsake it, to confess it? And Pastor quoted a passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I think it was you. The Thessalonians portray biblical repentance. You've turned from idols to God. That's a good classical biblical illustration of repentance. It's twofold. We turn from what we were doing to doing right. In this case, they were turning from their idols to the living God. So guilt and sorrow are healthy if they lead us to repentance. If guilt and sorrow don't lead us to repentance, you're going to get a hard heart and a desensitized conscience. So the thing to do for all of us is when the Spirit of God puts His finger of conscience on what we're doing or thinking or saying or attitudes or whatever, then we need to take care of that. But both remorse and repentance produce tears. We've all heard that little proverb, the, the proof is in the pudding, eating. Well, the proof is in the changed life. John the Baptist couldn't say it any better. Bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Continued sorrow with no repentance produces a bad heart. An insensitive spirit. That's a very dangerous thing because that person becomes callous. And we were just talking at the dinner table over there. We're seeing girls now with hard hearts. 
because they've already seen their Christianity as just being a list of rules. And then, then they were caught doing things. They didn't get soft. They didn't get tender. They didn't repent. They just got harder and slicker. And now there's no conscience whatsoever. No fear of God whatsoever. And I fear a lot of young people are in that condition today. One of the best biblical examples of repentance is David's account of his adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. He repented. Sometimes whole churches are called on by the Lord to repent. He did that with Ephesus. Repent, do thy first works. There's hope for us, my friends, if we repent. But if we respond to the still small voice of the Spirit of God with anger, just seeking to avoid temporary embarrassment, just trying to calm troubled waters, I'm going to be in a worse state than I was in the first. There's no hope for that proud soul who thinks it's beneath his dignity to acknowledge sin. Whereas hope and assurance are given to the humble who repent and seek forgiveness and cleansing. Demand for repentance implies a free will. Because the concept of repentance is something I must do by my decision. We're not puppets on a string. We're not automatons. God has given us a free will. You and I must decide whether or not we repent. We can appropriate the grace of God to do so, but I can also reject that. Sackcloth for the body and remorse for the soul are not to be confused with the determined rejection of sin and turning to the Lord. So repentance is a condition of salvation, but it's not the foundation. The foundation of salvation is the blood of Christ, forgiveness of sin. But repentance is an integral part of salvation. The first four Beatitudes form kind of a, a spiritual or heavenly stepladder by which a seeking soul can find their way out of darkness into light. If you, if you want to turn there or just listen. But in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 6, here's these Beatitudes there, the Sermon on the Mount. And notice here he talks about the poor in spirit in verse 3. Poor in spirit, what's that all about? When I finally see my spiritual poverty, what a wretch I really am. That knocks me off my prideful throne when I'm poor in spirit. Verse 4, they that mourn, when I finally see how bankrupt I am, how unworthy I am, it produces grief in my soul. Verse 5, the meek, when I'm finally willing to humble myself, that's when I'll seek the Lord in humility. Verse 6, those that hunger and thirst, when I finally develop a strong spiritual desire, which becomes a hunger and thirst, then I'll abandon my sin. And I'll turn to that one who forgives and grants repentance unto life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
We thank Thee for Thy mercy in our lives, that Thou art willing to give us the Spirit of God and the grace of God that we can repent if we choose. And Lord, help me by Thy grace to see that it's always wiser to humble myself, seek forgiveness, whether of another human being or of Thyself, and help us one and all here today, Lord, to include this basic fundamental message in what we share with needy souls. That it's not enough just to be caught in sin, to be nailed, but that we must not only confess but forsake what we've been doing. God help us one and all. We pray in Jesus' name.